People often say, well, the community has no voice, right? And that's how they articulate, I think, the lack of power and influence over decisions. You know, but it's wrong. I mean, every community has a voice. They just don't get heard. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. City builders often talk about the need for community consultation. And consultation is important because it brings perspectives and feedback from community members, but too often, people consult with a preconceived notion of the outcome or a limited application of what the community has to say. Another approach to involving the community is to co-create. That is, to develop ideas alongside the community. So today I wanted to talk to someone who leads an urban design practice that's based around this concept of co-creation. Brent Brown is an architect, planner, and urban designer. He's also the founder of Building Community Workshop, a nonprofit community design group based in Dallas, Texas. Building Community Workshop, or BC Workshop for short, enriches the lives of citizens by bringing design thinking to parts of the cities where resources are most scarce. To do so, BC Workshop recognizes that it has to understand the social, economic, and environmental issues facing a community before beginning work. In this episode, Brent and I talk about BC Community Workshop, what design justice and the community design movement means, and stories of successful community design in Dallas. Let's dive in. I'm an architect. Um, I say that um, boldly and proudly. Um, and, um, you know, at the same time, I think I, I, um, I've struggled throughout my, my professional career to uh, how to practice architecture, right? We, architecture is like, it's like a thing. You know, we think about them as these buildings, objects. Um, but uh, it's fundamentally about a process and how we work and um, this idea of practicing architecture, right, um, is something that, you know, it's very humbling to realize when you're getting started because you have all these great ideas and you think you're really super smart and going to change the world. And then you realize that you're just in the beginning of trying to understand the complexities that are surrounding and internal to what you're working on whatever it is, you know? Um, so, you know, that's, uh, for me, um, that, that's what I do. I, I, I try to, I try to be as aware as I can at whatever I'm working on. And, and, um, and I try to stretch the boundary, I think, as to how to apply that, um, project-based and things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, that's, uh, it's, it's an interesting, um, introduction for yourself because uh one of what we want to dive into is is uh your founding and and the work of community building workshop and uh that's actually an interesting setup because uh figuring out new ways of practicing um pushing the boundaries of practice uh this is this is where i think uh manifests itself in bc workshop so perhaps you could um share with our listeners uh what building community workshop is and and why it is that you you founded it sure uh, building community workshop um we call it bc workshop i think now we've evolved to just calling it bc uh, <laughs> um you know it's a nonprofit uh in the tradition of the community design movement um it's a in its name a workshop. Um, it's it's trying to marry uh, engagement, community 
uh, organizing dialogue uh, partnership with creativity design processes etc to to um, go directly at um, the, the physical aspects of where we live and uh, where we occupy and 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 shape them in a way that is is directly influenced by the public interest and 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 altering the kind of social and economic um, considerations of things and, and, and environment is key uh, we see it kind of integral uh, to the work I'm, I'm not meaning to leave it out but really directly going at the kind of social and economic implications of how cities and places get built who participates uh, this is very much out of the social uh, uh, justice movement civil rights movement uh, and in the tradition of community design uh, that really came strongly out of the, the 60s nationally. Um, uh, but we, we're doing it. It's an independent nonprofit. It, we, we do work with universities. We've had um, folks on our staff that teach or I've taught, but we're not officially affiliated with either a, a university or a, a professional guild of any sort. Um, which makes us a little bit of an outlier in in the community design organization world. Um, you know, I, for at the same time now, your other part of the question of what what brought me to start it. Um, you know, I I'm from a small town. I grew up more rural. I, uh, I I grew up around people that did a lot of making using their hands. As we as I as I moved to Dallas. Dallas was the closest big city um, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, you know, I found myself practicing architecture, being frustrated by that traditional practice, learning a lot, not being critical of it, just learning a lot. But as I went out on my own to start my own practice, I had had several mentors. I was struggling with reconciling the kind of patronage model with wanting to be um, relevant with my work and having an impact on um, where I lived. Um, and so I, I delved more deeply in trying to understand the community design movement that I've referenced already. And I've tried to look at others that were many popular at the time, but the different models. And I made the decision that I would, I would construct a um, part of my practice that ultimately came, became BC Workshop. Uh, and and then when I was able to start really the organization out of a project need, I mean, it came out of directly a project need. Uh, we, were, we were trying to avoid really creating an entity, you know, and um, keeping it more loosely as a collective or collaborative. And then um, we had to own land to help do work in a particular neighborhood. And you had to have an entity and to do it in the most transparent way, it was to create a nonprofit. And then therefore it wouldn't be personally held or any, you know, wouldn't be in a for-profit, you know, which would help to, we hope to build trust in a community, um, with a community, I should say. And so it, it's, it may sound to be, you know, sort of publicly benefiting aspirationally. It's quite selfish uh, of me to do this, I think, because it, it, it brought a lot of joy to me, you know, trying to put my design skill and training in service to community 
and being able to do it in a way that could get organized, could bring other people to the table. We could hire staff. We could grow an entity then that became a kind of piece of infrastructure in cities now and now beyond Dallas and other places that would directly help, you know, shape those places. Uh, but doing it in partnership and through um, really an accord that uh, advanced the, the interest of the communities that that existed there, that were impacted historically, marginalized without resource and et cetera. So, you know, I it. it I'm not going to claim it to be altruistic. Uh, I, I will tell you, it it has brought me great joy, uh, and and it has uh, and there are many many people um, that are a reason why it's it's had success and 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 why it continues. I think to be successful today. So, mm-hmm. um, terrific. There's, and that, it, there's that input. Yeah, and, and I think I think that that's interesting that you you uh, you frame it as as potentially selfish. I think that's one of the uh, one of the interesting things with people that are uh, passionate about what they do. There is ov- obviously a, a, a self interest in that regard, but it uh, what it ends up doing is providing a a lot more battery power for you and your and your team. I imagine because of the sort of fundamental belief in what you're doing um, to benefit others. So that's uh, that's really exciting. Um, and so on, on your your uh, your website, uh, something that caught my eye right on right on the landing page it talks about design justice through community engagement. Uh, I don't think I've come across the term design justice before. Can you describe what uh, what's meant by that? Well, we always have a hard time talking about what we do because it's mm-hmm. it's complicated. And some time ago, oh, I don't know, maybe ten years ago, we were. Um, we were working on things and trying to figure out how to talk about it. And I've been fortunate to work with uh, members of the, the legal community, the, 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 the traditional, what I call organizing community, you know, community organizers, lawyers, uh, et cetera. And I think when we come to talking about things like environment, when we talk about uh, civil rights, we, we use the word justice fairly um, um, frequently. You know, and we and it's a definition of of um, delivering through uh, organizing through law uh, and the practice of law justice in 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 our society. You know, cities are um, laden with countless numbers of decisions in different realms, and one of them are within how it's designed. It's how how it was laid out. It's how it's evolved. You know, where where do things go? You know, it's no accident of where highways, uh, uh, you know, got placed. Those were deliberate and those were design decisions. I don't think we like to talk about sometimes design in the negative light. But we know we know that it's not all perfect. It's not just creativity does not, you know, always end in beautiful and joyful and equitably joyful and beautiful experiences. And so, you know, shining a light on that and saying, how do we build or how do we design more justly? Right. And um, through us, you know, we feel that that is in partnership with community and by engaging very rigorously uh, ongoingly. Uh, in discourse with communities and, you know, community is a nebulous term. I mean, you know, who is the community? Sure. Um, 
you know, who represents the community. Um, and so, you know, I've learned a lot from uh, South Texas organizers, um, you know, and another word to talk about is power. Where does power lie? Who gets to decide? Um, and so how can we use design as that tool of justice to um, bring about uh, greater inclusion uh, to uh, uh, building power and to exercising those variety of interests that exist in the public to, to make a better place um, again. And I think so that's that's a little bit of a of an, of an overview, I guess. It, it, it's something that, you know, it does. It it, it sounds powerful. Um, I don't know that our work has achieved it. Uh, I think we have worked around it. I think we've had moments of uh, real progress in places, but I think acknowledging that it, it is an ongoing activity. Um, it's not, it's not there, you know, the end is not something that you can necessarily achieve. It's something you aspire for and that you dream and you try to work hard for every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that to, to your point of <clears throat> it, it, uh, you know, it probably, there probably is an ultimate goal and an ultimate end, but, uh, in the meantime, that mindset is what's necessary to make that shift. Um, you know, on a very practical and day to day basis to to permeate through the levels and complexity of the decisions that uh, that you mentioned earlier, which is which is super, super powerful. And I, I think, uh, yeah, that's that's a really important um, uh, concept that I think uh, we, we haven't really touched on uh, in, in depth uh, yet. So that's 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 really great. Uh, well, and let me if I can add, yeah. I think what I what I've also you know, this sounds nice you know, bundled up neatly, BC Workshop is doing this. But look, partnerships are key. You know, I mentioned a couple of disciplines, law, organizing. These are skills that are very necessary, I think, to do um, significant, meaningful, impactful work. Mm-hmm. Um, and and another is the community development world. You know, those um, individuals that are working to make change. Um, and I, I mean that in the sense of organizations. You know, they're building stuff. Yeah. Um, so how how partnerships occur across those different um, uh, dimensions um, has been key to this, not only in helping us to understand better, uh, at least the beginnings of how we can work differently, but then also just on projects. Um, I find it uh, I, I find those skills all necessary hmm. um, to for, for us, you know, and depending on where capacity is in different places. Uh, I think it requires you to take take on different actions, right? There's not a single way uh, forward to do this. There's situations, there's tools, I think, and there's uh, values and commitments, um, but there is no silver bullet hmm. to uh, allow us to work across these things in the same way everywhere. Right. So, so there's often talk about at, at, at the individual professional employee level, the the you know the the idea of emotional intelligence and that the, how that improves the the workplace, but the the sort of uh, situational intelligence that's required to understand, you know, perhaps you have, let's say you have 10 great skills, but three of them are covered by organizations in a community where you're working. So for you to actually have to step back in some of those regards for a better result, is that a, that a fair way to, to kind of capture that? I think that's an excellent way to capture it and to, and to be really honest and upfront about what that situation is in order to tack 
the processes and, and emphasis uh, and where you are at stages of development. Mm-hmm. And, and development's such a big word as well, right? Because these things are not, it's very hard to force um, um, a matter uh, when, you're, when, you, when you're missing certain pieces to, to be in that. So you need to help to be an advocate and build those capacities mm-hmm. outside, outside your own world mm-hmm. and, and, and be trusting and, and wanting for them to, I think, live independently mm. um, because it creates, I think, the dynamics which lead to that richer, more complete um, uh, program. And, and from the perspective of capacity building, is that something that is is built into your way of working and processes that might be uh, absent in sort of the, uh, you know, the patronage model where you just get paid and you deliver something because you're the expert? Well, I don't I don't know that I've ever really talked about it this way in a in a in a strategy. Uh, it languages a little differently, you know. So some people have said, well, why is it a nonprofit? And and um, I, I intentionally wanted to build a funding mechanism that would be uh, allowing that freedom of discovery. Right. This comes about right. through philanthropy and grant making uh, uh, from groups that really are investing in a way of thinking or a direction of exploration. And, and the, the outcome may be a high variable. Uh, but on the other scenario is we, BC's always derived uh, a high percentage um, from fee-for-service. So ironically, the patronage model functions in a way um, uh, within BC Workshop, traditionally in the sense of a contracted fee. And it's always been about um, anywhere in the realm of uh, 50%, 55%, 60%, because of the ability to go to scale, you know, the ability to actually see direct impact. You know, we saw contracting with municipal governments, contracting uh, with other nonprofits um, as a way to not only bring about what we do into a project, but then to change systems, right? These relationships, they're fundamentally different. Our nimbleness as a result of a hybrid model where we have contributed income uh, based on our investigation, based on our work, based on um, our proposals of what we're you know, up to trying to do next, gives us a freedom. And it's, you know, I think it's been interesting to sit in a municipal meeting with someone like a department head that wants us to help them think about something. Um, it's given an independence that allows us to put forward how we work and as a as a real um, um, requirement of working with us, um, and I think the situational approach that we were talking about is one then that we have modified our approaches, but not again this idea that um, our work should help to achieve. Um, higher levels of equity or the idea of this design justice, right? So we don't back off the principles and the values that that drive us, but we do evaluate each situation in a way of how we can change someone else's systems uh, or how we modify our systems to be appropriately um, forwarding those, those values. And um, we found people are pretty open and interested in it and they find us, they they find kind of um, an intrigue to it. Um, they want to hire us and we're telling them no. <laughs> and, and it's a, it's, you know, it comes back to the power discussion. 
um, that if if uh, I never forget a meeting where I was you know, I was in a meeting and they said, oh, we want you to do X, Y, and Z, and we said, well, we think you need to be doing A, B, and C, as an you know just just hypothetical here, mm-hmm. and and they said, well, that's not what we need, and I said, well, okay, how about if we modify what you're asking in this way, but we add these things. And they're like, but that's not what we're asking for. So, well, that, but that's, that's what's necessary to do this in this way. Uh, again, being inclusive and starting to, starting to involve the community in a very direct way of decision making. And um, they ultimately said yes, because um, we were going to figure out a way to, to do that. We had to navigate the fee structures and things like that. And our and our our model helped us do that. I mean, that's the financial side of this. It gave us enough freedom that we could take a risk on uh, moving the project in a, in a different direction than, to say, the client wanted. But that would open up a, a whole series of, of opportunities for the community to be more directly involved. And I think for the project to realize um, it's real. It's, it's real intention uh, of, uh, you know, improving an area. So, you know, equitably. So anyway, I, you know, I'm going on and on about something there. I don't know if I got my point across, but it, you got to build flexibility. And that's where that, you know, the, the opportunity of a fee based and contribution base um, to how we fund our programs uh, has given us a lot of freedom. Mm. And so, so yeah, but I think the, what what came across pretty clearly is that there there may be um, mechanisms and clients, and there's a flexibility in that. But at the end of the day, BC Workshop stands for something in particular, and it has to fit in that frame every time, uh, which allows ways to get there. And that's that's one of the things that we found, um, you know, as we, as as our own organization has become clear on who we are, what we're about, that it actually is you you, you create a bit of a a magnet uh, for folks that might be interested in this, and you have to have hard conversations of the you know the 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 sh- to define your shared outcomes. But um, you know, we have a kind of running joke in the office for firms that aren't like that. And just, you know, their website could be, we'll do work for money.com. And it just, whatever you tell us to do, we'll do it. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's facilitation needs, right. In all kinds of ways. I, you know, I like, I, I, you're right. I, I tell you the, you know, the, the strength in, in being able to say no, um, is very important in, in in order to I think shape um, consistency in what you're doing. And you know it's not just about growth. It's not just about. And one of the things I was going to add is when we've moved in a way into new areas, new ge- geographies. You know we've been invited to come and think about doing something somewhere. The first thing we do is really take a hard, serious look, very intense look at. The capacity of that area, we were talking about this kind of situation analysis type stuff. And, you know, we who's doing this? Is anybody doing it? How are they doing it? You know, because, you know, we should be helping to lift up, um, you know, and get out of the way uh, or not enter if if there are uh, efforts underway. You know, how, how can we be helpful on that? Right. And there's been right. some examples where. Um, you know, we've gone into new geographies. There have been existing organizations. Their approach and ours is slightly different. 
we completely modified everything that was being thought about and we took a different tack because we could go do something that they couldn't do. They, they do so many things we couldn't do. And I think that's where you have, again, to be very open-minded and aware um, of that need for, for partnership, collaboration, and the like. So, mm-hmm. and could, you, could you maybe share a story or two of uh, a particular BC workshop project that you're most proud of that kind of uh, uh, illustrates some of the things that we've been, uh, we've been talking about? Well, there's a couple. Um, early on, you know, really one of the projects that got BC off the ground, um, which is the reason why we exist as a nonprofit, was uh, there's, a, there's a street named Congo in East Dallas. Um, and it was a neglected street in the sense it, it, it literally had a history of, of um, sort of racial bias, segregation and the like. Um, the gerrymandering of property on this street. It was a very narrow street, uh, very small lots. Um, and we, we, there were a series of homeowners that owned their property there. And yet, and there was also rental property there. And the, the current plan that was adopted by the municipality was, was to basically remove everything that was there and build all new, right? It's sort of a new version of urban blight kind of removal and um, um, it was talked about, you know, the planning side of all it was talked so opportunistically. Uh, but, you know, for many ways, people that live there weren't aware because of just involvement, you know, in, in how cities work from time to time. And, um, and, I'm, and, and I'm not blaming the city on that. I'm just talking about the interests of, of, a, of a city as a whole. Right. Sure. I mean, and. Sure. Um, and Dallas is a very segregated city economically, racially. Um, and so getting to know those families was incredibly meaningful. Um, we, we ended up coming up with an intervention uh, where a property owner, homeowner on the street, basically gave us a vacant piece of land next to their house and we built a new house. And it was a concept that came about because of that analysis that you know, here were families that made a, a social connected unit. They supported each other with after school care or with rides to work or with all kinds of things. And the street was this lively, it was a, it was a very lively kind of uh, living room, literally the street, people, you know, walking and talking in front porches. And it's, and again, this is, this is an area that's, you know, overall a uh, street that's about, you know, 500 feet long with houses on either side of it. And, uh, but the lots are very small. They're like 3000 square foot lots, um, with these single family houses, duplex houses that, that are in the neighborhood of about 650 square feet, you know? Um, so they're freestanding. They're an outgrowth of, of, uh, a segregated city where, uh, very small houses were built and small lots and places and African-Americans were given, um, I'll use the word permission to reside there in the sense of there were very few places that residency was allowed um, in another time. And so it's an outgrowth of that. It's, a, it's an actual um, um, reflection of uh, the beginnings of Dallas and, um, and, and that ugliness. 
But in it was an amazing sustainable model of small footprint houses, small lots. You know, you couldn't you couldn't do this in in a in the suburban sort of nature of of a city like Dallas today. And this narrow little street and um, this intervention was literally we built a house that became we called it the holding house. Well, the neighborhood, the the street, the residents there named it the holding house. And they said it held you because we were able to move individuals from their home into the house while we then did repair work on their houses. These houses were in very poor condition. Oh, okay. And so we didn't disrupt the social infrastructure that the street provided to those families. Hmm. You know, because if you were moving out of your house and had to reside somewhere else, you know, you might not have your right to work. You might not have, again, that childcare after school. You might not have... Um, other other support that came about through the kind of neighborly relations. And it was a very unique place. And um, um, that disruption and solution that occurred with this one house has now, the street's been completely rebuilt. Those homeowners are still present on that street. They've not been displaced. Um, the street was entirely improved now by the city. It was a green street with integrated stormwater improvements. And it all came about because sitting around, getting to understand the situation of these families in context to what was an adopted city policy. And so it was this, you know, experience and skill that came about from an architect and a group of other young, energetic, you know, um, designers and uh, students and things of that of mine. And, um, but the ability to carry that forward and organize it and be integral part to to raise funds for it. And, um, you know, there'll never, another, there'll never be another Congress Street project uh, ever. It, it, was the, it was just such a unique place. But its ripple effects have infused our work uh, and has been heard, uh, you know, across the country um, in other parts. You know, I picked up, somebody sent me a newspaper from South America with the cover of this little house on that was on the, this, this, Spanish newspaper about this little house that had won an award and and this street and you know the power of of that singular action uh, to me exemplifies um, that it it doesn't always take big projects right Um, but it does take that thoughtful time and the creative kind of marrying of of um, you know local knowledge really on the street knowledge that exists in communities and skill design skill right yeah so yeah and it's i mean interesting of of uh you know like a lot of uh, good city building moves that it's not this earth-shattering paradigm-shifting kind of thing once you hear the solution you just kind of say well that makes a ton of sense that's absolutely right i'll tell you Another example is in the Rio Grande Valley, where we were partnered with uh, uh, Lupe and Arise, two very, very uh, established, grounded community organizing groups that, that came out of the farm worker movement of South Texas, um, uh, really the founding of Lupe by Cesar Chavez. Hmm. So rich in this uh, skill and commitment and uh, deep connection to the, to the many border communities. And um, here we are providing this kind of design skill and partnership and working with residents and colonias. And 
uh, throughout that area. And, the, you know, the big issue is drainage. It's flooding because poor areas are inundated uh, because of not only no infrastructure, but they're also just the lowlands, right? This is the more affordable property. And, mm. and this can exist in many cities in the United States, especially, uh, where those of modest means find themselves in, in land that, that may not be the best quality uh, or at least resourced. And, um, um, w you know, we were working and what we found was our skill in mapping and drawing. We developed a set of, this is at a whole nother scale uh, in the sense of a region where we're mapping watersheds and we're mapping drainage districts because there's no real coherent knowledge across the area about how all these systems work and especially within the areas that Lupe and Arise were working. And we put together a series of pamphlets that were, you know, very, you know, they could fit in your pocket and they could unfold and you could see how different parts of the systems work and really start to understand that, you know, these systems have been designed where they're lacking in infrastructure, you know, asking the question, why are they lacking? You know, mm -hmm. why are some areas working better than others? And Lupe and Arise did such a great job of organizing and going to the water district boards you know, and a lot of people that get elected to these boards, they're not engineers and technical experts. You know, they're they're trying to do what they think is a good thing. and But they don't even understand part of how these systems work. You know, so they're turning and asking their engineers to explain this. And at that moment, you know, one of the community resident leaders said, that's OK. Let me turn to my landscape architect. They'll explain it all to you. And, <laughs> and, and you see the power shift in the room. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for some people, this may not sound like that big a deal, but for hundreds and hundreds of people that are inundated by flooding as a result of engineering and design decisions, which I consider the same, that have basically created the situation. And now having those residents be informed and they are articulating their interests and wants and have resources equal to that of that body in the case of a really bright um, landscape architect in this case, um, it's empowering, which shows that you can shape where you live. You have a say. You have a right to a say. And, mm -hmm. um, but not everybody has the time for that, and not everybody has the resources for that. Some people can afford to pay somebody to go and talk to that water district board. Um, some people have a lot of time on their hands. Uh, but that's not always the case, especially in modest communities. Yeah, th th those are that's that's fantastic, and it, that that la that latter story, um, you know, makes me think. I, I haven't really thought of. Um, you know, the city building professions in this way, you know, a heavy part of our, our own practices, you know, engaging and bringing the, the community voice to the change process. But the idea that uh, the authority and attention that the professions can bring can also can can serve as kind of a, a megaphone for the voice of the community to to be heard in ways that maybe they hadn't before. Yeah, so um, my, my, my dear friend in Detroit, Dan Patera, um, who's been working there for decades, he's very much rooted in a community approach. Uh, he's an architect. Dan, Dan uh, when we first met, we got in these discussions, and I, I love the way Dan puts it. You know, he's, you know, Dan is like, we get it wrong. You know, people often say, well, the community has no voice. Right. And that's how they articulate, mm -hmm. I think, the lack of power and influence over decisions. 
You know, but it's wrong. I mean, every community has mm -hmm. a voice. Dan For would sure. tell you every community has a voice. They just don't get heard. Yep. And so much about what we do, he says, is, you know, that we're amplifying these voices through different mediums. We're using design as, as the tool. You know, we're helping to uh, develop materials. We're, but in many cases, we're not the ones that, that, that bring those forward. And that's why I love that story. There's others. Um, there's an amazing uh, recent um, project in the Valley that um, is mirroring and sorry, is matching. This is still in the drainage issue because it's just one of these fascinating um, um, situations uh, in the valley that's difficult to overcome. But it's putting together traditional music that was founded in parts of the valley. Cajunto music uh, was begun there. It's a it's a kind of a combination of uh, traditional Mexican music with German uh, hmm. immigrations that were coming out of the hill country and others. And so it's it's uh, very unique to that part of the world. But it's actually community members in the tradition of kind of organizing and protest, writing songs and, and narratives about their communities related to water and struggles and then being put to music to be performed. Hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm bringing this one up because and there's some others we've done in Dallas around, you know, Deer House, which was writing letters to a vacant house to to, you know, the cultural placemaking kind of side of things. This stuff's. It's it, it's really hard to find joy and fun in the struggle of a mm. lot of this work. And I think we forget because especially as professionals, as we're doing it, we're getting so much joy by doing it. It's got to be fun for people. And I don't mean that in a trite way. Yeah, I for mean sure. that in a culturally expressive and in a way that um, that's why I'm so, so proud of the team that came up with this idea of marrying you know, an issue and song and words with this with this very um, uh, original music uh, from a place. And, you know, now you've got kids singing songs, uh, you know, about drainage, <laughs> which, you know, 10 years ago, people didn't even understand how this stuff was working around their communities. And, you know, it's just a stretch, obviously, into cultural arts and expression beyond just architecture and planning and landscape architecture and the like. But I think that's, again, you know, a creative design oriented thinking that looks to multiples of methods and tools to help bring about the kind of capacity building and awareness and um, in, in different places. One 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 of the final questions I wanted to touch base with you on with with the extent uh, and depth of of the work that that you've done and your 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 group has done, um, what what kind of advice or words of encouragement would you give to any uh, any city builders of any kind uh, out there um, to put their time, attention, and skills for communities where it's where it's most needed? So there's two things. And I think for whether it's an architect, a designer or whatever, you know, as you approach, you know, there's kind of these two two descriptors. One was is a place and the other is an issue. And I decouple them. And I think you have to pick one. And allow the other one to find you or for you to find it. Um, I often find people that are approaching a place um, prescribe issues. They don't discover the issues fully. 
they are too quick, and especially from the design fields, they're, they're too quick to want to solve the problem when they don't mm. understand the problem. And they haven't really come to identify what all the issues are and to the extent of a complexity that we know exists. Um, right. You know, if we're really aware and we try to see a place, we will find those issues. But to really clear our heads and be vulnerable in not understanding those issues. And then flip it. Mm. If we're really an expert around something and we have an issue that we're passionate about and that we want to work on it, don't prescribe it to the place. Don't, mm. you know, let go in, of the geographic allocation and really search the place to understand how what your issue is applies or doesn't apply and be vulnerable to recognize it may not. You know, mm. it just, it, we force a lot. And um, now I don't mean to imply that when you have a, you know, kind of a, a meeting of these, an accord between these, that you don't push and you don't work like hell hard, you know, to, to advance things. I just, I think for me as, um, we would have never seen the holding house if we, right. if we had right. applied, you know, a traditional model. We would have never jumped to these other realms. You know, I tried to hit on a couple of different, different kind of levels of, of, of work and, and approaches. Um, you, you, sometimes it's the reality is there things are coming top down. So instead mm -hmm. of thinking mm -hmm. about reversing it to be bottom up, think about turning it on its side Yeah, because it needs to be, it, it's, it's, it's gotta be this multidimensional from all directions. Um, because there's never enough funding. There's never enough time, you know, uh, you're never going to understand everything. <laughs> But at the same time, I think you've got to find places to be vulnerable. And that's my prescription of, of pick one, pick a place mm -hmm. or pick an issue and then let the other one find you. Um, that's, that's a really helpful frame because I think that, yeah, I, again, I haven't, uh, haven't heard or, th or thought of it in those, in those terms. And one of the, the, um, recurring themes in the, the conversations we've had on, on the podcast is, is just the idea of expertise and how that is defined, uh, over time. And so I think, you know, when you're trying to force those two at the same time, what you're doing is, um, you know, maybe maybe it's uh, could be sh shown as an insecure uh, application of your expertise, and so I, I I'm an expert in this area, and so you have to do what I say, as opposed to being cool and calm with it and saying I know my stuff, and I know my stuff well enough that I am humble enough to listen to you, and then let's take advantage of my skills and experience by marrying it with your experiences, and let's come up with the holding houses of the world. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate that, and yeah, it's okay to say I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, it's mm -hmm. really okay. It's okay. It's okay to say no. And it's okay to say, I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, for we, sure. We need the freedom to be able to then say, but I know how I can find out. Yeah, that's right. You that's know? right. That's, that's so, the most important part. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. So, uh, just one last question that we ask, uh, everybody that, uh, takes the time to join us. If, uh, you could share a city that you love and why it is that you love it. Okay, so not to be um, um, difficult, but I guess maybe it's part of my nature here is that, you know, I don't have one city that I love and, you know, and, you know, inherently trying to see places you love a lot about a lot of places and you don't like a lot of things about a lot of places. Um, but what I'm going to tell you is the kind of unifier for me. So whether, you know, um, no matter where I've been, uh, what I really love about every city that I've been in is the people. 
Mm. And I know it's a, it's, it may sound kind of quaint and nice, but it's why we construct and we shape and we've built these places, right? It's been about people. And I think in all of our own individual actions, we're creating collectives, right? And, you know, everywhere you go, um, whether it's climate or it's the geometry or the density, you know, um, it, it, the common denominator is this unifier of uh, this collective of people that are in a place making it making it work, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and and then at the same time, they don't work for a lot of people. And that 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 is that conundrum and messiness that we don't we don't like to acknowledge in cities. So what I will tell you that my favorite places, though, are not in cities. They're out mm-hmm. in the wilderness um, where you can go off and be by yourself and you can kind of reflect on what it means um, to be alone in the world and then couple that back into going into the city. You know, and I think that is sobering uh, to have us know how much we rely on each other and how much we need each other and how we've got to work to make our cities. Again, it's a it's a it's a word used a lot today, but more equitable and that means we've got to upset the traditions of how we've been building them. And I think BC, I, I, I think and I hope is an example to some of a, a an approach and, um, you know, uh, getting, getting to know you all and others, you know, will be exposed to other approaches. And um, hopefully every city reaches its potential um, in, in, in those aspirations. So that's that's where oh. I'll leave you on uh, um what I like about cities. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. If you want to learn more about BC Community Workshop, check out our show notes. For the rest of 2019, our episodes will be released a little bit differently. I'm about to head off with my family to go around the world in 103 days. Stay tuned for conversations in cities across the globe, and the episodes may be released a little bit off schedule compared to what we normally do. But never fear, we'll be back in January with our regular bi-weekly episodes. And if you happen to have any suggestions on folks I should talk to in cities like Penang, Singapore, Abu Dhabi, Rome, Madrid, Medellin, or Cartagena, email me at hello at 360degree.city. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.